Wait, are there two birthdays on this call right now? There are. June 6th is Sarah, and June 7th is Nathaniel. That's right. What'd you get us, Galen? Uh, This (laughs) podcast. Mm, Thank you. Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. We've got a lot to discuss today. Last week, Democrat Melanie Stansbury won a special election in New Mexico's first congressional district by a 25-point margin. The seat was vacated when Democrat Deb Holland became Secretary of the Interior and was expected to remain in Democratic control, but Stansbury's big margin surpassed expectations. Today, we're gonna talk about what that race and other indicators can tell us about the national environment, We'll also look at some of the big questions facing the parties, like the position Joe Manchin staked out in an op-ed over the weekend, and the re-emergence of former President Trump on the stump also this weekend. Then finally, we're going to mark a tradition here at 538, which is checking our own work. So after each election cycle, we like to take a look at how well calibrated our forecast models were and be transparent about what we find. So that report is going to be coming out this week, and we will give you a preview of what we found on this podcast. So definitely stay tuned for that. we will be breaking news on this podcast today. Here with me to do all of that are Editor-in-Chief Nate Silver. Hey, Nate. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Good, having a LaCroix. I shouldn't, is that product placement? It's not. LaCroix pays money. (laughs) LaCroix, sponsor the podcast. Also here with us is politics editor Sarah Frostenson. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Galen. How's it going? Good, good. Not LaCroix, but San Pellegrino. So yes, bubbly water. Wow, wow. Look at all the good morning (laughs) bougie people of America drinking all kinds of fancy (laughs) seltzers this morning. Nathaniel Rakich, elections analyst, what are you drinking? I uh, don't have a drink with me, Galen. Mm. Oh, I'm so sorry. And for those watching along on YouTube, here's my glass of vodka. It's Monday morning. I'm kidding. It's warm. <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> All right. So how is everyone? It is summer. The pandemic has been receding for a while now. I'll tell you, New York was hopping this weekend. I know you're all in different cities around the country. How's life? How's it going? I know. I read some article on the internet about how, like, we're just slowly getting back to normal. I'm like, if you f-ing, like left your apartment mm-hmm. <laughs> in 14 months, like New York is popping. Anyway, yeah, that was an unnecessarily sarcastic diatribe. <laughs> Having been in Houston, where like people were masking, but not like the East Coast. I'm sorry, they just they weren't. DC has been very aggressive. I feel like where it's like for the outdoor farmers market, you still have to mask. And part of me, I feel like I'm like, guys, like, are we not reading the signs? We're outside. But I kept those thoughts to myself. I wore my mask. I was a good, <laughs> good patron. But I had some questions. I actually was on a plane for the first time in like a year and a half, which was exciting and felt normal except for wearing the masks. And I was going out to eat and everything. And yeah, it was great. It was fun. Love it. Well, we have a lot to cover, as I mentioned, so let's get to it. And we're going to start with our favorite question, of course, and that is good use of polling or bad use of polling or a slight variation of that question. So last week, Pew released a new poll looking at American views on the death penalty. And for some context here, Pew wrote that, quote, the death penalty is gradually disappearing in the United States. Last year, in part because of the coronavirus outbreak, fewer people were executed than in any year in more than three decades, end quote. Okay, that's a real tone shift from like, yeah, the pandemic's ending to talking about the death penalty, but follow along with me. The poll found that a majority of Americans do support the death penalty, though, for people who have committed murder, despite how rare it has become. Republicans were more likely to support it than Democrats, 77% compared with 46%. But the most notable finding for our purposes is that the survey method used affected how people responded to the poll. So Pew conducted both phone and internet polls during the same period of time. And when asked online, 65% of adults said that they favored the death penalty, while over the phone, only 52% of Americans supported it. So a slightly different question than our normal question is, which is the better use of polling, the online poll or the phone poll when it comes to tackling this question of support for the death penalty? I mean, they're interesting in conjunction with one another, I would think. Why? I guess 
intuitively, I would say, well, people are probably being more honest online. Why not just go with that one? So it's not quite apples to apples comparisons. The way that you recruit a panel is different online versus on the phone. The way that you wait a poll is, is different online versus the phone. I guess I'm surprised that this particular question on the death penalty produced such a large difference. There is research, including from Pew, showing up, for example, for election results, you ask about Trump versus Biden. There aren't many differences on the phone versus online. And typically it's thought to be like issues that are more politically correct issues that people might be more sensitive about when they're talking to a stranger versus when they're anonymous. I was struck by the gap among Democrats in particular. So much in the last year, we've been talking about polls missing Republican support or misunderstanding it. And this report really showed a gap among Democrats, 17 points with those online saying 49% support versus on the phone, 32%. There was a gap among Republicans as well. Like it wasn't unique to Democrats. It just wasn't as large. And Republicans were more likely on the whole to say that they supported the death penalty. But to get at what Nate was saying, I was surprised that this issue in particular, you saw such a gap because Pew has shown that it's not every issue that this is true of because it wasn't just this cycle. I believe they also had polling previously that showed the same kind of line among those online versus those on the phone. And something that I think as they continue to evaluate their polling methods, they'll want to keep in mind when doing this survey, particularly on the death penalty. I think the bigger gap on the Democratic side is definitely evidence that social desirability bias might be at play here. You would expect that Democrats would perceive that other Democrats or people in their social circles oppose the death penalty because that's kind of what Democrats are supposed to think. But maybe they themselves are a little bit more uh, gung-ho about it. It made me think of that piece Hakeem Jefferson did for the site last month where, granted, it was about white liberals and white conservatives, and it's more than just white people answering this survey. But this idea, as you're saying, Nathaniel, where it's, well, as a Democrat, I oppose the death penalty. I need to fit within that, like, tribe saying that. And clearly, when given the online option where you could be a little bit more anonymous, that kind of fell by the wayside for some Democrats. Yeah, I guess there's an issue about crime and how Democrats feel about crime. You have a mayoral race in New York where you have differences among Democrats, among are you going to increase police officers, are you going to decrease it, right? So that could be tied in that thread. Still, though, I kind of thought the death penalty would, would not be as controversial as some other subjects, but clearly Pew found differently. So I want to nail down here, one, why is this happening? You mentioned social desirability bias. Can you explain what exactly that is, why it would play such a big role on a question like the death penalty? Like, are there certain categories of question where we do see this big gap historically? What are the kinds of questions where we expect it? Historically, there was something called the Bradley effect, which is that people, including Democrats, would say they support an African-American candidate if you ask them on the phone, but then in the privacy of the ballot booth, and they might vote for the white candidate instead. That effect did not really appear all that pertinent. For example, Obama was elected president twice and did very well relative to his polls. The polls are pretty accurate in Obama's elections. But that's a theory, right? That people may harbor views that are less politically correct on racial issues than when you're talking to someone on the phone. It is a human interaction, right? You want to like not appear to hold like an overly, if you're a Democrat, conservative view on crime, for example. But online, you think no one can see your response and you're more honest, supposedly. But that's the theory. It's support for racial equality, support for, say, gay rights, other things of that nature. People kind of express more support in public and a survey interaction is somewhat public than they would in private. This is total speculation, but on something like the death penalty, if you're kind of a quote-unquote woke Democrat, the death penalty can kind of feel medieval. It's like a very emotional thing to be like, yeah, like an eye for an eye, you know, that person should be put to death for what they did. And so maybe that's why they feel particularly like that's not a sentiment that they can express in their social circles and their political circles, but they might be more willing to reveal their true uh, instinct almost to an online poll. I'm still though surprised like this issue by such an overwhelming margin and not like, you know, similar things on abortion or something else equally divisive for voters. And why this, I'm a little surprised at for Pew. Part of the polling that Pew published did relate this to a kind of racial justice 
lens, at least, a majority of Americans, 56%, said Black people are more likely than white people to be sentenced to the death penalty for being convicted of serious crimes. And also about 80% of respondents said that there was a risk of executing innocent people when using the death penalty. There was at least some risk that an innocent person will be put to death. So maybe that gets at some of the underlying social desirability, people realizing that there may be some faults or inequities in how the death penalty is used, but supporting it nonetheless when they're asked online versus over the phone. But I want to come back to the initial question here, which is, so given this potential social desirability bias and the clear gap that we've seen repeated, I think Pew said it was repeated over at least three times that they've conducted the polling, they found reliable gaps. They've also found reliably that Democrats have a wider gap between online polling and phone polling. Which is the better use of polling? Should we just say people are being honest online and they're not being honest on the phone and go with that one or what? I mean, the official 538 position until recently was that live telephone polls are superior, but we found no longer that's necessarily the case anymore. I think it might be doing too much of a shift to say, oh, now we assume that like online polls are superior. There are problems with trying to recruit like a random sample of people online. So they're not, again, totally apples to apples. What you'd like to see, of course, is to verify things against like actual election results. I think it's a bit interesting that when you had the protest last summer, in general, they polled fairly well. And yet there's evidence, for example, from Kenosha, Wisconsin, that Biden lost more vote share in Kenosha than in other similar cities. I mean, again, the nexus of like crime and people's racial attitudes is something which you might expect to have more effects here. And it would probably be more among Democrats and Republicans, Republicans are like more openly conservative, whereas Democrats might not be. I think it's an open question, basically. Yeah, I'll leave it to people who are smarter and study polls more carefully than I do. Um, wait, man, the, isn't that your wait, whole dude. job, Nathaniel? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> no, but I mean, but like Nate has actually like conducted studies on this. There are other polling experts who are kind of more in the weeds on it. I certainly defer to them. But I did want to throw out one data point, which is that I believe the last time that the death penalty itself was actually on the ballot was Prop 62 in California in 2016. And of course, California being a very liberal state, you maybe would expect them to vote to abolish the death penalty. But in fact, they voted to keep the death penalty 53% to 47%. That's a good data point. See, I'm good for something. Good job. We also, these kinds of ballot propositions in California have been interestingly revealing over the years. So affirmative action in government institutions like public universities and public employment, public education, public contracting was on the ballot in California in 2020. And Californians rejected affirmative action 57% to 43%. So it seems like when these things are put on the ballot and people can vote on them in private, they may express different views than you would assume given the party position or party platform. The one question I have here though, because California is unique, so mostly in politics, People are not actually voting directly on these issues and positions are more talked about in a public setting where social pressures do play some role. Like, could you turn this on its head and say like, well, no, your public view is maybe just as important as your private view because politics in many ways gets acted out in public? Oh, totally. I definitely think that. And that's why I think to Nate's earlier point, having both of these data points is important and considering both of them is important. But if you vote, then it's, a private matter, right? Well, right. But what I was saying was that, like, it's only in California and a few other states that have this degree of ballot measures and putting, like, propositions to voters all the time that people are actually going to end up voting directly on something like the death penalty or affirmative action. Like, most states, these debates happen in public, not actually at the ballot box. I agree. I mean, look, I think there is a increasingly kind of performative aspect to politics these days, including on the left. And so one question is like, as politics becomes more performative, as you may articulate a view in public that you don't necessarily share with your friends around the dinner table, you wonder if these gaps might kind of grow again, especially in polls of Democrats. That's kind of a, a theory that will be proven out or not over the next several years. Interesting. I think because Pew hasn't 
necessarily found this kind of gap evident in other types of issue polling. I know they're in the process right now of rethinking a lot of how they do their polling. It makes sense to continue to have the online and telephone to kind of observe the trend to make sure that remains true. And also just does this happen in other issues? That's something I'm really interested in. Because last year, actually, they had looked at issue polling to kind of see, you know, what does error look like there versus horse race and concluded that there wasn't a ton of error or at least not big enough error that over time changes the outcome in terms of like a majority of Americans supporting something or not supporting something. But clearly here, like 51 percent, what was it versus like 60 percent or more is a huge difference in terms of thinking about the death penalty and support. And so I think tracking that over time and to understand what that looks like for other issues would be important. Yeah, that's a good point. All right. We will keep an eye on it. I guess people who came to this good use of polling, bad use of polling segment looking for a definitive answer aren't going to get one today. But hey, that's life. Sometimes things are a little murky. Let's move on and talk about the special election in New Mexico. But first. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Last Tuesday was the first time a Democrat and Republican faced off in a federal election since President Biden was sworn in. It was a race to represent New Mexico's first congressional district, and Democrat Melanie Stansbury beat Republican Mark Moores by 25 points. That's an improvement over how Democrat Deb Holland did in the district in 2020. She won by 16 points then, and also an improvement over how Biden did in the district against Trump. He won by 23 points in 2020. The election mattered in part because the Democrats' margin in the House is so slim, but also because we often look to special elections as some indication of the national political environment, how Americans are viewing the two parties. So we're going to talk about all that today, plus more. And I want to start things off. Nathaniel, I know that you were tracking the margins in this race and some of the dynamics. You also had like a live Twitter conversation as the results were coming in on Tuesday night, which I I guess embarrassingly, because I wasn't even supposed to be working that night, was like listening to. You guys did a really great job, I should say. But so how did Stansbury's performance compare with expectations heading into the election? Yeah, so as you alluded to, I think by any measure, she did very well. She won by 25 points, which exceeds the 538 partisan lean of the district, which is D plus 18. And I think, frankly, if you had more qualitatively talked to insiders, their expectations were even lower for her. They thought maybe she would win in the in the low teens, maybe. And the thought was that if she won by single digits, or obviously if she lost, that that would be the point where Democrats would start to need to panic. And of course, she kind of blew all of these expectations out of the water. Why? There was a thought, I think particularly among Republicans, obviously, that the messaging that she was weak on crime and the Republican candidate was strong on crime would be effective. The Republican candidate, Mark Moores, really went hard on the issue of defund the police. Stansbury had kind of made an offhanded comment at a forum and that she repeated on Twitter or her campaign team repeated on Twitter that she supported the Breathe Act, which is kind of this very big picture aspirational proposal akin to the Green New Deal in terms of it's more symbolic than an actual proposal, but it includes a lot of things like abolishing ICE and defunding the police and things like that. And Moore's really seized on this and ran a bunch of ads with the traditional scary music and ominous voice over saying that her policies would let criminals out on the streets and especially in a place like Albuquerque where crime is fairly high. It's kind of a perennial issue in mayor's races there. There was, I think, a lot of thought that that would help Moores overperform the district's partisan lean. But Stansbury put out a, a pretty effective ad, I thought, that had a law enforcement officer saying, you know, I trust Melanie Stansbury. And then I think perhaps more important, she just really outspent Moores. Moores seemed to run out of money in the last few weeks, whereas Stansbury was able to saturate the airwaves with TV ads. And she also seemed to do a really good job getting Democratic voters to turn out early. We don't like to look at the early voting numbers here, but there was a pretty solid early voting turnout, particularly among registered Democrats. So I guess I would say that she ran a 
a good campaign. And obviously the district's lean was with her. She matched that lean and, and added a couple of points on top of that, maybe because of her strong campaign. I want to be a little contrary here. Ooh, go for it. Love a little disagreement. You've made some good points, but I also think one thing we lose sight of is just how blue this district was. It's important that she won by more than Biden, more than Holland. However, it's still a really blue district. There wasn't a lot of super PAC spending. You didn't get the sense that the Republicans were really making that viable of a bid in the district. She also outspent her component quite a bit in terms of like overall ad revenue and stuff. So I do think we saw, to Nathaniel's point, a taste of what the defund the police movement and rhetoric could look like from Republicans moving forward here in 2022. I just think we have to be cautious about how much we read into that, given this should have been her district to win anyway. Not that the margin isn't important or doesn't matter, but these aren't necessarily the districts we should expect to be super competitive moving into 2022 or where Republicans maybe think they'll make their most inroads. Totally. And I think, you know, we say this about special elections all the time that you don't want to read too much into any one special election in terms of the margin and thinking that it's a pro-democratic or pro-republican national environment. And I would say the same thing that just because the defund the police messaging didn't work in this one election doesn't necessarily mean they won't try it again, doesn't mean it won't work in other parts of the country, et cetera. So Nathaniel, you've explained the why behind this specific election, why Stansbury was able to overperform Biden and Holland. But Really, of course, the big question here for people who follow national politics is how generalizable, I was going to say nationalizable, but Nathaniel Rakich informed me that that's not a word in English. So how nationally generalizable is this result? You started to tackle it. You talked about how one special election doesn't tell you what the national environment looks like. Is anything here applicable to the national environment? So the debate over crime and law enforcement In general, does it tell us that at least there hasn't been a Republican backlash yet? The kinds of things that we would normally look for in the first midterm cycle after a president is elected. Should we just say, guys, don't even look at this race, add it to the average and move on? Or does anyone want to make the case that something here is a lesson to be learned more broadly? I mean, in general, elections dorks have a tendency to overhype special election results. If you take all the special elections that occur in an election cycle and use it as a predictor of what the midterm or the next congressional election will turn out. There's some predictive power. However, looking at like the generic congressional ballot, which our readers will probably recognize, is a more reliable indicator. So it tells you something if you know nothing, but if you have other indicators of how popular is Joe Biden, what's the average voter say they want for representation in Congress, and those indicators still for the time being fairly good for Democrats and kind of in line with this election result. But the question is, will there be a backlash between now and next November, which I think you can't really like learn very much about. I mean, if you had like a congressional election today, I think Democrats would probably do fairly well. But traditionally, there's been a backlash that has brewed over the course of the first two years of president's term. Albuquerque, which is where this seat is, is kind of an unusual place in some ways. It has a lot of Hispanic ancestry. It has a fair amount of Native American ancestry. It's also kind of working class. So, you know, it's an interesting place. I think it might not be among the more generalizable districts in the country. New Mexico is pretty special and unique. At the same time, of course, Democrats saw the performance decline among Hispanic voters in 2020. There is some data from polling that shows that Hispanics are more back in the Democratic corner now and tend to support Biden. That would be a big deal for Democrats in 2022 and 2024. This might be consistent with that. But again, if you kind of ranked how unique the districts are, Albuquerque could be like one of the more unique culturally and demographically districts, I think, anywhere in the in the country, really. Okay, so we will try not to be the election dorks that you speak of and <laughs> overhype this one particular race. But you mentioned that there are other indicators that we can look to. The generic congressional ballot, for folks who don't know, is just when you ask Americans if there was a congressional election today, would you vote for the Republican or the Democrat? We don't really have reliable polling in that arena at this point because it's too far away from the congressional elections to be asking those questions. But a question that is asked very often and we can get like a solid average for is approval of President Joe Biden's job. And currently, according to our average at 538, it's 53.3% of Americans approve and 40.4% disapprove. For a first-term president, how should we rate that? 
There are generic ballot polls. Quinnipiac did one recently, and they had Democrats plus nine. There are those with different numbers. So we don't have our average up, but if you go to our projects.538.com backslash polls, backslash generic dash ballot, then you can see the polls as we collect them. There's not a large volume of them yet, but they do show Democrats tending to be ahead. Historically, presidents would come in and they would be fairly popular in their first three months or whatever. What's interesting about Biden is kind of how little those numbers have changed. Like literally his approval rating is like the same every day within a point or so and every day that we publish this average since the start of his term. And he's now kind of outliving the stage where you'd necessarily call it a honeymoon, right? We're past the first 100 days. You might have expected there to be some decline and there hasn't really yet. So I don't know, but we're also like a year and a half almost removed from the midterm. And so it's still kind of premature. But there's a theory that, hey, maybe Biden's just a fairly popular guy. Maybe Democrats will defy the historical midterm penalty. This is a whole other segment we could do probably or probably will do, I'm sure. But nothing is too like dispositive at this point. It's, it's still June of the of the pre-election year. Yeah. Just to add numbers to what you said, the day that Joe Biden took office, his approval was 53%. His disapproval was 36%. So his disapproval has ticked up, you know, a little bit for points, uh, but his approval is exactly the same. And I think that's the thing. It's like, you don't want to get hung up on one number, but as long as more people approve of Biden than disapprove, that does actually bode well for the midterms, because it's when presidents have had a higher disapproval rating than approval rating that they've tended to lose seats and get that midterm shellacking. Because even though like Bill Clinton in 98, it wasn't a wild success for Democrats, he had a really high approval rating and it wasn't that bad. You know, George Bush was kind of a weird exception with 9-11 and having sky high ratings then. But there is this conceit that if you look in recent elections, if a president can tread water, so essentially what Biden's doing, right, like above average, not great, but not bad, then that could bode well for Democrats moving into 2022. But it's way too early to zoom in too much on that. Yeah, I'd put a, a little bit of an asterisk there, Sarah, because I think that historically, when even when presidents are slightly popular, their parties do still lose seats, just not, you don't have a huge shellacking. The instances where the party wins seats are the times when the president is hugely popular, which I don't think Biden will reach. That said, you could also make a case for the fact that everything is so polarized now uh, and presidential approval or vote track so closely with congressional vote that even maybe a small positive net approval rating is enough to carry Democrats across the finish line. But yeah, I, I am kind of one of those people who does believe that Republicans will have a good 2022. So I'm definitely not ruling out the possibility that things will shift, that that approval rating will tick down eventually, or that the generic congressional ballot will swing in favor of Republicans. We kind of got spoiled, I guess, in 2017 because the generic congressional ballot went directly to Democrats basically right when Trump was inaugurated and, and that was a very consistent signal from the beginning of the cycle. But if you go back to the last midterm shellacking, the Republican wave in 2010, Republicans actually didn't emerge as the favorites there until probably like the winter of 2009 and 2010. They didn't start taking the lead in the congressional ballot until I believe December. So there's definitely time, but I'm keeping an open mind. So this gets at the conversation that we're going to have later on, but I'm sure that some people are thinking, hey, the polls were not that accurate in 2020. How much stock should I put in all of this polling, whether it's approval polling of Joe Biden, whether it's generic congressional ballot polling? What say us to a question like that? It's a great question. In theory, pollsters are supposed to notice when they f*** up and correct for that. Do they do that in practice? I don't know. I mean, I thought maybe after 2016 that polls should be mindful of their other samples and make sure that they're check out in 2020 and you have the same bias, an anti-Republican bias in the polls in 2020. Again, I don't know. There are also theories that in 2020, the problem with polling was caused partly by the coronavirus pandemic, that you had a bunch of Democrats who were more likely to follow social distancing recommendations, stay at home, response rates went way up. Now as kind of in the US at least, society returns more back to normal. That might be less of an issue potentially, would be less of an issue in 2022, assuming the virus doesn't have a resurgence between now and then. So it's a great question overall. I still think the strong default is to assume that we don't know in which direction the polls will be biased. They could be biased in either direction. Were there polls, Rickich, in the, in the New Mexico race or not? There was one. Yeah, it showed Stansbury with a 16-point lead, and obviously she won by 25, so it undershot her. There you go, sample size of one. 
I'm sympathetic to those who maybe want to look at the current generic ballot polls that show Democrats in the lead and maybe want to nudge them down a few points toward Republicans, um, especially given that the special election results so far have been equivocal. You had the New Mexico race, but then you've also had some good results for Republicans, like the Texas 6th special election that happened a month ago. But at the same time, I think it's also important to remember that in 2018, the last midterm election, the polls were very, very good. And in fact, the generic ballot polls were like within a tenth of a point of the House popular vote. So to the extent that, like Nate said, the polling error was due to the coronavirus, or maybe it's Trump being on the ballot himself. There's something about him that pulls out these low propensity voters. But I'm not convinced that midterm polling is in as rough shape as presidential polling may or may not be. The polls have been very good (laughs) in elections in which Donald Trump wasn't on the ballot. That could be a fluke of small sample size. I don't know. But there's some Trump-specific turnout effect or some Trump like social desirability bias, right, then I don't know if Ron DeSantis or whatever, <laughs> or Nikki Haley would get the same balance if they happen to be the Democratic or the Republican nominee in 2024, but all TBD. Actually, related to what you just said, Nate, there are two questions I wanted to address in this national political environment conversation before we move on to talking about our 2020 models. And that's two big questions facing the parties at the moment. So one is the role that Trump is going to play. He spoke at the North Carolina Republican Party's convention over the weekend. Reportedly, he has been telling people close to him that he believes he will be, quote, reinstated as president by August. That's reporting from Maggie Haberman at the New York Times. So what kind of position does that put the Republican Party in, given that it seems like a lot of Democrats are activated by Donald Trump's presence on the national stage. Like, is it a net benefit for Republicans because they need Trump to drive out their voters and get them excited or get them angry at Democrats? Or is it a net benefit for Democrats because they're going to see him in national politics again and get activated in a way that they were for the past five and a half years? Electorally, I think Democrats would be perfectly happy if Trump occupies more real estate in voters' minds. He lost the election. His actions since the election have made him, if you look at favorability ratings above Donald Trump, have made him less popular when he lost the election by a huge but sizable margin in November. Let me add to what I just said. This is part of his reemergence actual plan. Like he plans on holding rallies throughout the summer. And this was his first opening salvo speech at the North Carolina Republican Party convention. This is opening the door to him doing more rallies around the country and things like that. So that's in part why this is a relevant question. I mean, this is why maybe I kind of disagree with some of the conventional wisdom that Democrats are going to suffer this inevitably very substantial midterm penalty, which there is obviously a lot of like empirical story behind. But like usually when a party loses the election, it pivots away from the things that it perceives were causing it to lose. Instead, Republicans are kind of like doubling down on Trumpian rhetoric on Trump himself in certain ways. They're doubling down on these threats to democracy, which is something that people should obviously take very seriously, right? So wouldn't election be invalidated is one question, right? But like none of this is especially popular, I don't think. I mean, you saw in Georgia how Republicans doubled down in the runoff on Trumpism, and they did even worse than they had in November, when you would think that traditionally people want to like create more balance. You know that you, you knew you were going to get a Democratic elected president eventually. So if you were trying to maximize the chance of Republicans winning the midterm, then I think you'd probably not feature Trump as prominently. But at the same time, it's a little bit of a catch-22 where maybe if Trump is not on the ballot, then GOP turnout is not very high. If Trump is, however, a primary story, then swing voters are turned off. So it's kind of like pick your poison a little bit. But in general, it's worth doing that Trump is not terribly popular. And to Nate's point, I think it's hard then to see how Republicans use Trump being more present in the primary cycle in areas like Georgia where they need to win and didn't previously, perhaps directly because of Trump. You know, if anything, a big takeaway from the November election was voters were okay with Republicans down ballot. They didn't want Trump at the top of the ticket. So why doubling down on that as like a national strategy for Republicans? It's hard to see how that helps them remain competitive in areas they struggle to hold on to in 2020. And maybe they're just more so doubling their margin in areas where it was already Trumpy, very red, and they were going to do well. 
It does seem, though, that, right, we are headed towards a primary, particularly among Republican voters. We're seeing this play out in Ohio right now where, you know, one candidate is handing out a scorecard on who's the Trumpiest. Like, we're going to continue to see that in the GOP primary. And we'll be tracking it. And I'm very curious to see how that pans out in terms of a strategy. I don't know if I mean this point quite clearly enough, but again, it's very unusual to see a party double down on the guy who just lost an election. Yeah. And that's why you would say, okay, empirically, you have this very strong precedent that not always, but the large majority of the time, the president's party is punished at the midterms, but there's not a lot of precedent for the thing we're seeing now in the Republican party. And so therefore the question is, depending on why that midterm penalty exists, if it's because people want to create balance or because parties tack to the center, if those conditions no longer hold, maybe the precedent no longer holds. It's just a, a theory that we'll learn about next November, I suppose. Right. And I think we'll dig into this more in future episodes because we will be covering the 2022 midterms. But like, it seems like people who think pretty hard about the Republican Party's electoral success, who also seem to be on board with promoting Trump and aligning themselves with him in preparation for the midterms. So it seems like there are some people trying to make this calculation saying Trump will drive turnout and that without Trump, they I guess maybe they're concerned about turnout. Does anyone else see that as a reasonable position to take? Like, I'm not asking from a how is democracy doing kind of position, but like for people who look at the national environment and just want Republicans to succeed, is that a realistic position to take? I generally, in my veteran years of covering politics, I generally assume that you shouldn't assume that parties are acting rationally from the standpoint of trying to maximize the chance of winning general elections. They are often acting tribally, or if not, I mean, Republicans are like acting rationally in the sense of like, if you oppose Trump, then you may lose your primary. You may turn into Liz Cheney. And so therefore, it's rational for you to like back Trump, but like there may be a price to pay still in terms of what happens in, in November potentially. And there's kind of a lot of short-term thinking. Then again, if you think that you can actually like invalidate election results, then those incentives change too. And it's important to emphasize that as well. All right, one final question here on the Democratic side. Before we move on, we should note that over the weekend, Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia wrote an op-ed saying that he would not back the For the People Act, which is Democrats' big election law bill, addressing all kinds of different things like gerrymandering and trying to standardize certain aspects of election law across uh, all of the states. It gets into campaign finance, things like that. He said he would not support it. And then he reiterated what he had already said, which is that he will not back changing the filibuster. He won't back changing the filibuster when it specifically applies to voting law. He won't back it regardless and essentially made a pitch for bipartisanship. What position does that put the Democratic Party in? And here we can either talk about the national electoral environment or just as a party itself, what it's able to get done and and what the next year and a half will look like. Yes, I mean, Manchin made it clear that he was leaving the John Lewis Voting Act on the table, which had attracted bipartisan support in a way that the For the People Act had not in the House um, and moving into the Senate. That said, though, he's naming Rakowski. That's one Republican senator. He needs 10. He is the villain on the progressive left for the Democratic Party. He is the senator who either, you know, gives a thumbs up for something to happen or a thumbs down and it doesn't. And I think What's interesting about Manchin and just also, you know, in terms of what the Biden administration's own policy has been around getting bills through Congress, what bipartisan support looks like, are they redefining it, is Manchin's clinging on to this really old definition of like, we get in there, we work with our colleagues, we figure it out. I, I was reading a an op-ed on the kerfuffle over the weekend, and he was saying that if Republicans said that four plus two equals eight and Democrats said four plus two equals four. He would say, oh, it's six to just be in the middle. And he does seem to take that approach on most things where it's like he isn't against the minimum wage, but he wants to go, you know, a dollar more than what the Republicans were pushing for. And it doesn't seem as if that type of lawmaking is getting through Congress. And it seems as if right now then what that means for Democrats who are facing an onslaught at the lower level from Republicans in various states making it more challenging to vote is that it's going to be unlikely to get big sweeping voting reform through Congress. Yeah, it's not a huge surprise that Manchin is opposed to H.R. 1, 
or S1, I guess, the Senate version of it. He strongly hinted that earlier. But like, it's also like a very big bill that was designed originally in 2018 or 2019. It's kind of like a bill that was more of a showcase for a set of good government, liberal electoral reforms that were not really designed necessarily to impact GOP efforts to subvert <laughs> elections necessarily, right? There's a lot about like campaign finance and lobbying and stuff like that that aren't really related to the current threat or crisis as I probably would define it. HR1 was not necessarily a bill designed to actually be signed into law by a president. It was a bill crafted when you had a Republican president and a Republican Senate to showcase different priorities, different kind of liberal groups were interested in. But it all of a sudden kind of became this bill that like, I mean, I guess it's like, well, we have to do something and therefore this is something. It's kind of something that was like the default. But if you were crafting a bill from scratch based on A, the fact Democrats have these very narrow majorities and B, the fact that things are different now than in 2018, then you crafted a different bill. You might be concerned about voting rights, but you'd also be concerned about electoral subversion, which this bill doesn't really address very much. The fact that Manchin has indicated some openness to H.R. 4, which is the John Lewis bill. To Sarah's point, yeah, I mean, bipartisan, it just means Lisa Murkowski for the time being, but still, still having one is more than zero in Joe Manchin's brain. And so it seems like that might be the place to push. Take the skinnier so-called version of the bill that has at least one Republican supporter and dare Joe Manchin to support the filibuster for that bill when you might have, let's say you have 54 or 55 votes or something like that. That's where I think this is probably headed. He kind of kept that door pretty wide open. So I don't see anything that happened this weekend as necessarily being like surprising. The other thing too is like Democrats have no leverage over Joe Manchin. Even like cinema in Arizona, Arizona is now purple enough where you can imagine that she would lose, in theory, a primary challenge from her left. Georgia, which is a fairly similar state, you have Warnock and Ossoff, who are kind of more explicitly like liberals. Arizona, you probably have a more liberal Democratic senator now. They might have some risk of losing the general election, but like they have leverage with her. With Manchin, he may not run again for re-election. He would probably not lose a primary challenge if he did the nominee would lose the general election almost for sure in a state as red as West Virginia is. Joe Biden is not popular there. Kamala Harris is not popular there. So you can't leverage any kind of presidential effort to browbeat him into supporting things. You just have to like actually use moral persuasion, <laughs> I guess, with Joe Manchin. And in his brain, the fact that this bill seemed partisan and didn't have any GOP support, I think he's like sincere in his beliefs. It doesn't mean they're right necessarily, but like, but it's a unique situation where you don't have any pressure apart from his conscience, basically. All right, let's move on and check our work, see how we did in 2020. Briefly, of course, you already know a little bit of how we did. But first, we've made it a tradition here at 538 to check our work and see how our forecast models have performed in past elections. And Nate just wrapped up that process for 2020. We're going to be publishing the results this week, but we'll give you a sneak peek at those results right now before anybody else. So, Nate, how did we do in 2020. So I think we did pretty well. Surprise. <laughs> well, <laughs> honestly, Nate, if you were like, I actually don't think we did that well, we would really make news on this podcast. <laughs> no, I would be, I mean, I think we've had bad cycles, but this cycle wasn't one of the bad cycles. So mm. overall, we made 529 forecasts. If you look at 435 House races, plus 35 Senate races, plus the presidency, etc., it's 529 forecasts. And of those 505, we correctly identify the winner of the race. Now, a lot of those are gimmies. In my district on the uh, west side of Manhattan, I think Carolyn Maloney is representative. Not hard to predict that the Democrats going to win Manhattan. Actually, the west side of Manhattan is largely Jerry Nadler. Carolyn Maloney is the east side. Okay, but it wraps so around. You might, be, you might be drawn into it's Carolyn Maloney. Maloney's district. No, I, it wraps around, and I am part of Carolyn Maloney's uh, district. Like, I believe you, but... Almost all of the west side of Manhattan is Jerry Nadley. Well, okay, we can get in a debate about whether I'm really in the west side of Manhattan or like kind of central Manhattan, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm in Maloney's district. I do know that. Okay. I believe you that you're in Maloney's district. By a block, by the way. Exactly. If I walk down to 7-Eleven to get a Slurpee, I enter a new district. You'll be in my district, which is the 10th district, which is Jerry Nadley's district. Yeah. Okay. But I digress, or you digress. So, okay, if you look at the granular results, they did well, but also... The important thing is how well calibrated are you, right? Meaning we're making probabilistic forecasts. So are we as accurate 
as we claim to be. And in theory, we should have gotten on average 497 out of 529 right. And in fact, we got 505 out of 529 right, which means that the forecasts are giving you, which is very close. So it's truth in advertising. The probabilities that we give you are largely accurate. And in races that, for example, we say are solid calls, meaning that one party is almost certain to win all 399 out of 399 of the races were called correctly, and the races we call likely 73 of 77 were called correctly, whereas like the toss-up races, then those are more 50-50. Actually, 9 of 22 were right, so some of the toss-ups actually didn't go very well for us. But the races where we have a higher degree of confidence, then largely the forecasts were never been as accurate as they're supposed to be, if not a little bit more so. However, there is an asymmetry here. Obviously, in 2020, Republicans had to beat their polls, right? So of the 24 races we missed, only two were races where Republicans lost when they were supposed to win, and the other 22 were races where Democrats were favored to win but didn't. Again, that's kind of normal where we talk on this podcast about how like forecast errors are correlated. You saw that in 2016. For example, one party often tends to win all the toss-ups. But one question is, is there even more correlation than before as elections are more nationalized? I think you could argue from 2020 that there is actually, and therefore that might affect a little bit how we model things going forward. To me, the biggest near fiasco in our forecast is that if you look at how many seats Democrats won in the House, it was 222. It's actually outside the 80% confidence interval for our model, right? So the 80% confidence interval ran between like 225 and 250 something, I think. So 222 is actually outside of that 80% range. Now you're supposed to be outside of that range 20% of the time. It's not a huge scandal, but that might indicate that the races are even more correlated than we assumed before. And therefore, if one party loses a toss-up race, they might lose almost all the toss-ups. Again, an environment where you don't have localized races and everything is based on the kind of national environment. Okay, so long story short, people who paid attention to the 2020 election will not be surprised by the numbers that we're sharing, which is basically that the polls underestimated Republicans, and therefore they were underestimated in our forecast models, and therefore in situations where it was either a toss-up or a lean D or lean R, we weren't as reliable as we may have wanted to be because of the polls and our models therefore underestimated Republicans. Well, I mean, we only want to be as reliable as we claim to be. Wait, don't you want to be more reliable than you claim to be? No, that'd be dishonest. Ooh. Yeah, like think about it this way, Galen, like by definition, we should be getting half of the toss-ups wrong. If we get all of the toss-ups correct, we did not present things accurately to people. Wait, I really like this framing, but that's also why I went through and I was looking, right? Like, okay, toss-ups, we should be getting 55% of them correct. When you look at ones where Democrats were favored, we only got 8% correct. When you look at ones where Republicans were favored, we got 80% correct. So that's not truth in advertising. No, it is, because our models assume that the forecast errors are correlated. And that's why in 2016, frankly, that we were more right or less wrong on Trump's odds, because we assume that, like, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Michigan, it's not like you're flipping a coin three times. They're all going to be correlated. And they're all probably, if there's an error in the polls, they'll probably be of the same error in all three states, as well as Ohio, Iowa, et cetera. Now, there's a question of, like, there are, like, parameters in our model where you empirically estimate how much races are correlated or not. And I'm saying we have to turn that parameter even higher when we incorporate 2020 results into our model. But no, we're not like doing this to cover our ass, right? We are like actually giving you honest probabilities and the fact that the polls can have a pretty bad year, but our probabilities are still well calibrated tells you something, which means that our models do not assume that the polls are necessarily going to be all that accurate. Now, it is true that in 2020, we also had some reasons related to coronavirus where we assume there was even more uncertainty than there is usually. I don't think we'll have that unless there's another pandemic in 2022. But still, our forecasts are pretty cautious. We think appropriately cautious, and they kind of are validated by exercises like these. But when people are like, oh, you're being very bold to give Biden a 90% or 89%, I guess it was, chance, right? It's like, I'm not actually sure that's true. We spend a lot of time being very careful about how we design these models and we want those probabilities to be honest. I mean, if anything, historical models are a little bit underconfident, which means that 89% chances actually happen like empirically like 95% of the time or something, but it's not, it's not a large enough sample to really kind of evaluate that for sure. But like, we're not going out on a limb when we give someone an 89% chance, generally speaking. 
Well, I thought a good point you made, Nate, in the piece is this idea of, like you say, an 89% chance of winning the Electoral College. That doesn't mean a blowout, but I think people often conflate the two. Yeah, I mean, and the reason why Biden had an 89% chance is, like, you can have a fairly big polling error and he can still win. Now, if you said ahead of time, oh, I know kind of the error is going to be in this direction, okay, fine. But the fact that polls can be off by four point something points in a presidential race and they can be off by five points in the congressional race, the Democrats still wind up winning barely the Senate and barely, but holding on to the House, that's a very sizable polling error. And it shows that their position was pretty robust from a forecasting standpoint. So, Nate, in looking at this and now knowing, okay, the polls missed in one direction in 2016, they missed in the same direction in 2020, how are you thinking about this for both the midterms, but then the presidential in 2024? I don't want to think about 2024 yet. Uh, Fair. (laughs) Again, I still think that, like, empirically, the bias of polling is not very predictable from year to year. In 2014, you come off a year in 2012 where the polls, polls actually were too low on Democrats and Obama. There are a lot of theories about how, okay, well, polls miss African-American and Hispanic turnout. They miss younger voters. Therefore, polls have a Republican bias, and instead the polls did pretty well or had an anti-GOP bias. So, like, I think you have to trust the market of pollsters to sort out for themselves (laughs) how to solve these problems. Again, we have, like, a tiny little smidge of data where the polls were very good and the Georgia runoffs, they actually underestimated Democrats. The New Mexico race we talked about earlier, you know, we'll get kind of some tests in New Jersey and Virginia. We'll get other special elections between now and then. So to me, it's kind of like 2022 is the test of <laughs> whether pollsters have adjusted. Now, our congressional models in general use a lot of inputs apart from polls. So they already are a polls plus version, as we once called it. They're different versions of our model, like classic deluxe and so forth. So like, to me, it's kind of more a question of 2024 or 2024, if the polls have another bad year in 2022. And remember, there are two ways to have a bad year. You could underestimate Republicans again, or you could like miss this Democratic wave or something. I don't know. Do I think that polls are becoming less accurate? Probably, I guess. Although it depends on when you measure it relative to. Our models are calibrated based on going back pretty far in history. So to 1936 in the presidential race, the polls kind of sucked from like, the 30s and 40s and a lot of those years have been more accurate recently, but we literally kind of take a longer time frame because we know that polling accuracy has always ebbed and flowed over time, right? The highly accurate polls of 2006 and 2008 and 2004 and those years may have been a high watermark and we don't assume that it's the new normal necessarily. And so again, we kind of build in fairly conservative assumptions to begin with, but we build them in for good reasons, including that like polling is pretty difficult nowadays. All right. Well, when it comes to those 2022 and even 2024 models, we're going to have plenty of time to dig through whatever changes or new things we do end up doing in future Model Talk episodes. We'll leave this conversation there for now. But you did mention two elections that I wanted to touch on before we wrap up here, and that's the primaries in Virginia and New Jersey. We'll look back at them this time next week and give you an overview of what kind of conclusions we can make from them. But uh, Nathaniel, before we do go, can you just give us a primer so people know what to watch for Tuesday night into Wednesday morning when these results do come out? Yeah, so in Virginia, Democrats are holding their primary for governor, lieutenant governor, and attorney general. The governor's primary looks like former governor Terry McAuliffe kind of has this in the bag. It's kind of a rerun of the 2020 presidential primary where you have an establishment white guy with experience running and he's the runaway front runner and there are all these other more progressive or more racially and gender diverse candidates who are trying to take him down, but it doesn't look like they're going to do that. And then in New Jersey, you also have the competitive primaries on the Republican side. And that's basically a race between two people who are trying to out Trump the other. And there was one favorite who kind of locked down the support of a lot of local party organizations. That's Jack Chiarelli, but he says he's more Trumpy alternative. Hirsch Singh, who's kind of a perennial candidate in New Jersey, kind of verging on that status. He has made the race surprisingly competitive. Of course, Democrats are probably going to hold the New Jersey governorship regardless in the fall, but uh, it could be an interesting test of, as we were talking about earlier, Trump's influence within the Republican Party. Just one last question before we go, and we don't have to let this turn into a big debate, but uh, how many times do you have to run for office and lose in order to qualify as a perennial candidate? And does better or work qualify? 
Ooh, I was going to say, we have a piece coming on that this week to give a, a sneak snapshot of it. Essentially, two consecutive runs back to back. If your third's unsuccessful, you're done. You're done. Like, no one's supporting you in a fourth. Correct. Okay, so the answer is three. I love that we actually have an answer. So, Beto, if you run for governor, like, you either got a win or... Wait, no, he's a little less one, though, right? Well, he ran for president. Hello, Nate. Oh, okay. Should we, shall we forget so soon? Well, you can lose a primary. I mean, it's easy to lose a primary. They're like 23 fuck. How many could we name? We're not going to do it because we're over time and I have to get lunch. Could we name every Democrat that ran for president in 2020? Andrew Yang, Kamala Harris, Joe Biden, um, Bill de Blasio. Cory Booker. Uh, John Hickenlooper. Inslee. Um, he ran. Jay Gillibrand, remember her? Um, Bennett. Oh, Bennett. Kristen Gillibrand. Yeah, Michael Bennett. Wayne Messam. Messam, oh. Wayne Joe Messam. Joe Sestak. Um, <laughs> Mike Gravel. That's good. We have Amy Klobuchar. That's 10. That's only 10. Steve Bullock. Um, Cory um, Booker. Um, help me. Booker. Hawaii representative. Uh, Gabbard. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard. Tulsi Gabbard. Tulsi Gabbard. Elizabeth Warren. Um, Oh, yeah. Elizabeth Warren. Bloomberg. Bernie Sanders. Oh, Bloomberg. Um, Biden. <laughs> Michael Bloomberg. Okay, we're at 15. Marianne. Marianne Williamson. We're at 16, guys. We're probably forgetting, like, some real obvious <laughs> yeah. ones that are going to be embarrassing. You mentioned that already. Never mind. Uh, were there other mayors of New York City? Did Ed Koch? Any other? Was he dead? Oh, oh Pete, Pete Buttigieg. Buttigieg. Pete yeah. Buttigieg. Obviously. Klobuchar. Um, <laughs> okay. No, we said Klobuchar. We said Klobuchar. We said Klobuchar. We Biden, right? Um, we said we did say Biden. Wait, we're at seventeen. Come on. Okay, who else ran? I feel like we've named more than seventeen, haven't we? I feel like we have. No, yeah. no. Uh, random Western governors. Oh, a uh, Bullock. Did we say Bullock? We, we had Bullock. I said Bullock. Yeah. Um, I could be forgetting some, but okay. Oh, Seth Moulton. Seth Moulton. Nice. Seth Very good. Oh, and Tim Ryan. 19. And Very Eric Swalwell. Someone said Swalwell. Swalwell, yeah. And Eric Swalwell. 20. That's 21. Wait, we're so close. How many did we actually have, though? It was like 23? I don't even remember oh, how many there were. You so. and Nate had the major candidates. Yeah. Uh, oh, we had classification. Fight, yeah. Well, I guess Messam was a candidate by our purposes, right? He was not like, a candidate Revelle by was, our purposes, yeah. actually. So we should take him off. Okay. Wait, I'm going to start cheating and use Wikipedia unless you can come no, up with the other no. two. All right. I think do it's time s- to cheat. Did we say Harris? We said Harris. Yeah, that's the thing. Ooh, I think it's obvious ones, but we didn't say. I know. You know a, a good one that we didn't say? Tom Steyer. Uh, oh. You know another one? Julian Castro. Oh, no. Uh, yeah. Are those the only two we missed? Mm, Joe oh, Sestak? Do, do we I said Sestak. I said Sestak. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Then we did better than I thought. It means we got 22, actually, if you said Joe Sestak. Nice. Mike Gravel? I no. said Gravel like two or three times, I think. Yeah, now I heard someone You did? Okay, Gravel. then I did oh, okay. miss a couple of candidates that you said. And the final one that we missed, anyone? Give us a state. Uh, West Virginia. Oh, oh the very- Ojeda? Ojeda, yeah. yeah. He wasn't a major candidate. Richard Ojeda, yeah. He didn't. He was real brief. He got though. in and he yeah. got out. That's right. Deval Patrick, did we miss? In a quick addendum, Galen, it is three or more, but only one candidate successfully oh, beat that. John Delaney, that was... we missed. Oh yeah. Oh, John Delaney. Oh man. I'm Wait, sorry, what John did Delaney. I? How did I miss those when I was looking at Wikipedia? Well, I got, okay. Even Wikipedia good forgot example. John Delaney. John Delaney. <laughs> a good example. Oh, wait, no, no, no. I'm sorry. I'm an idiot. It's he's here. He's here. We won't throw shade at Wikipedia just yet. Okay. Okay. Well, guys, we got 20 something. I'm sorry for the ones that you shouted out that I missed, but why did we do that? <laughs> what was the, what, Perennial what candidates. Was the reason for that? Look, we Perennial invested candidate. in all that knowledge. We we we've got a trivia team right here. I know. We got to we got to go out. I mean, pandemic's uh, you know, receding. We got to go out, play some trivia, win some free beers. Uh, <laughs> anyway, let's leave it there. Thank you, Sarah and Nathaniel. Thanks, Galen. Thanks, Galen. Thank you, guys. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidigary Curtis is on audio editing. Emma Riley is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also tweet at us, of course, with any questions or comments. Actually, if you do have questions, comments, good use of polling or bad use of polling examples, 
reach out. Maybe we'll talk about it on the podcast. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store. When you give us a rating or review, it boosts our ranking or something. Other people will find us, listen to the podcast, whatever, or you can just tell someone else about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon. How nationalizable? Is it a word? No, but we're going with it. Generalizable is a word. How generalizable? Nationally generalizable. Wow. English. Who knew? Um, (laughs) I wasn't kidding.